0: in South Africa. It's time for The Long and
1: Short of It with Simon Hill, Dylan Rogers, and Dale Hayes.
2: Well, it's been a while between drinks which yep. is uh, pretty apt, given who we're speaking to on the podcast today. But welcome to another episode of The Long and the Short of It. My name's Simon Hill.
1: Yeah, and I'm Dylan Rogers.
2: And somewhere in Mauritius as we speak is Dale Hayes. Not uh, not here with us now, he'll join us in just a bit. But yeah, Dale, great to be back for another episode of of The Long and the Short of It.
1: Yeah, and chatting to an interesting character in the, in the world of golf, David Fearty, the Northern Irish... A uh, former golfer and now a uh, broadcaster for the past, what, 25 to 30 years uh, on American TV.
2: A highly nuanced character, mm, as yeah. uh, I think we'll soon find out. But brought to you by Blair Athel Golf and Equestrian Estate.
1: Yeah, and also the ultimate and secure luxury estate living, si. Uh Where lifestyle is a priority, located just three kilometers from Lanseria International Airport in Johannesburg. Blair Athel has it all. A world-class championship golf course, outstanding equestrian facilities, mountain bike and running trails diverse wildlife, helipads, tennis and squash courts, a high-tech fitness centre, spa and restaurant facilities. On top of that, the perfect environment in which to raise a family with easy access to nearby schools and close proximity to the planned Lanceria smart city. So, why not visit blairathel.coza and take the first steps in creating your dream home. Come home to Blair Athel, an unparalleled living experience.
2: Ah, oh, with the formalities out the way, here's our chat with the legendary David Faraday. David Ferdi, welcome to the podcast.
3: Oh, thanks. Great to be with you.
2: <laughs> and as we speak to you, second oldest golf tournament in the world, the South African Open, is being played currently at Blair Affle, who sponsored this podcast, by the way. Um, you spent some time out here right. in your early playing days. Did you ever play the South African Open?
3: Oh yeah, I played many South African Opens. Um, you know, from the early '80s through to the early '90s. Uh, uh, you know, I, I have great and really fond memories of, of playing the South African Open and and the other uh, tournaments down on the uh, on on the tour down there. And of course, you were a winner as well. Yeah, I, I won. Uh, I won three times. I won the ICL at Swartkop. Um, I won the South African PGA Championship at the Wanderers, and I won—I think it was the Bells. Mm-hmm. I think it was in Cape Town, ninety-two. Like. Yeah, yeah, I had a great time there and uh, had a home there for a while, and really loved it.
0: Now, now you mentioned—you know—you mentioned you won the ICL at swatcock We we actually own Swartkop now, my family. Oh yeah, small uh, world, isn't it?
3: Yeah, it sure <laughs> is. Yeah.
0: Now I remember Wanderers though. And it wasn't the year that you won it. You were wearing white pants coming up the 18th hole.
3: Yeah, tell us that story. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, um, I had a, a a minor mishap, if I cur- remember correctly. Um, I followed through. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it wasn't the year that I won. Fortunately, you know, I mean, because there there weren't that many spectators around, but uh, there there was. Uh, there was a, a change, a quick change in the locker room afterwards. That's for sure.
2: <laughs> the greens and wonders can be a little bit scary. Was it a downhill putt? I mean, what caused you to follow through?
3: I, I think it was. Uh, it was a monkey brain uh, sauce the night before.
2: Oh, old monkey gland. Yeah. Uh, as we chat to you now, uh, David, you waiting f- to go to the airport? Um, you've wrapped up the inaugural season of Live. Uh, we'll get to that in just a bit. But you're off to Houston. You got a bit of downtime until February. How are you How are you gonna spend
3: it? I have. Well, I've uh, I've got between now and the end of February off, which is really nice. Uh, and the winters here in Dallas in, in Texas are wonderful. Um, I, I love to, to shoot, and uh, I actually make sniper rifles. I've got a foundation for wounded special forces here, and um, I, uh, uh, I'm a gunsmith in my spare time, so what? I make bolt-action rifles. Yeah. That I did not odds? know. I, 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 yeah. I did not know that.
0: <laughs> David, you, you, know, you,
2: you tend to do things
0: in excess. Yes. Your whole life has been in excess.
3: Yes, when you has. start
0: riding a bicycle, you couldn't ride two kilometers or two miles. You had to ride 42 miles. When yeah. you started running, you couldn't run 100 meters or 100 yards. You had to run 5,000 miles.
3: Yeah. And when I had one castle, uh...
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, you, you, managed to, you managed to control that or not
3: really? Is that just something you live with? Um, it's just something I live with, Dale. Um, I have that addictive personality, and uh, you, you know, I I uh, I don't drink anymore, um, and I don't do any of the other stuff. I've been fortunate, and you know, my my wife has been uh, amazing in uh, in looking after me, in, in that in that regard, um, I, I've been very lucky. Uh, i think uh you know my whole life from from the day that I turned pro and and uh i, I went to umomcomas to stay with my uh uncle Harry Brannigan and uh, aunt margaret and uh, practiced there at at Kamas and at Scottsboro. is it scottsboro just scottsboro. Scot- yeah yeah and uh really i i learned to play golf in in south Africa and uh you know i just I keep showing up in the right place at the right time Uh, and uh, you know, with, with, I guess the right attitude, you know, when when the opportunity to join live came, uh, came around, I was right at the end of my tenure at uh, NBC and uh, it was the logical place to go. Mm. In fact, let's
0: go, let's go back a little bit, because when you are kind of getting a little bit disenchanted with playing on the tour, You were offered a big job to do television in America.
3: Yeah, that's right. Um, I'd qualified for the World Series of Golf um, uh, at Firestone. And I was at the bar drinking vodka and Gatorade because I was still an athlete, you know. (laughs) And uh, I'd shot some mediocre uh, first round. And, you know, I I hadn't really wanted to be in America. I, uh, you know, was was kind of dragged here, kicking and screaming. But... uh, And and I I never played particularly well. I finished second in Boston the first year out, but that was as close as I got. And uh, Ben Wright, the the English commentator, had just been fired uh, for comments that he made on the ladies' tour. He said, you know, women don't play golf as well as men because their boobs get in the way. And uh, I remember hearing that and thinking, you know, fair enough. Uh, But he got fired. And... uh, CBS were looking for someone who could go down in the ground, that knew the players on both sides of the Atlantic, that knew the caddies on both sides of the Atlantic, which, you know, was equally important because that's where we get a lot of our information from. And uh, I was kind of the logical guy, you know, because my game wasn't great at, at, at that point in my career. I was 36 years old in the middle of a horrible divorce. And, uh, you know, my life was heading downhill fast. And this amazing opportunity presented itself, and I I just jumped at it. And did you, in your wildest dreams, did you ever think
0: you could become as successful, as well-known, and as famous as you have become?
3: No, it never occurred to me. You know, it was always just, you know, this is a job that I love. And and I, I loved playing the game. I had the best time doing it, and I've had the best time in the broadcasting industry as well. I mean, I've—I think I'm the only broadcaster who's who's worked for the network in—you know—the the Open Championship, the U.S. Open, the PGA Championship, the Masters, the Ryder Cup, uh, the Presidents' Cup, um, all of the playoff events, and and the Olympics. Uh, you know, both winter and summer games. Uh, don't ask me why they sent me to the winter games. It was for the ski jump. Yeah, but uh, you know, I've I've had the opportunity to do some amazing things and be be in some amazing places. I know that you haven't played much golf, and I don't know if you play any golf. Where, where are you
0: with actually playing golf at the moment?
3: You know, um, Dale, I got run over by a truck. Um, I was riding my bicycle in uh, 2006 and um, I I got crushed all the way down my left side. It broke all the ribs and punctured my left lung and it mangled my left arm uh, to where I can't close my left hand properly. So I haven't played golf in 16 years. And um, when I see how well they play these days, I'm kind of glad that I don't.
0: (laughs) I'm going that that I can I can understand and I can I can, yeah. I can come with you. You played. I mean, a lot of people wouldn't remember how good a player you were. I mean, you won tournaments in South Africa. You won tournaments, obviously, on the European tour. Um, but you played in the Ryder Cup, and you played you played with your great friend Sam Torrance.
3: Yeah, I did. I got to play two matches uh, with Sam, and my singles match against Payne Stewart was probably the. Uh, probably the best round of golf that, that I ever shot. Um, you know, we're, uh, we're the, the whole European team, Ballesteros and Olathebel and Faldo and Sam and myself, and, uh, you know, we're uh, Monty and, you know, we're, we're clustered around the last green. That was the Ryder Cup in, at Kiowa Island in 91, where it came down to the last putt on the last green with the last group. Langer. And the tide stopped coming in you know, to, to watch. It was uh, it, it was the most amazing atmosphere. And Bernard Langer was over over this five-foot putt, and I'm shaking like a pregnant nun. I, uh, you know, I'm literally, you know, vibrating against Lawrence Levy, um, the photographer who's got a... Uh, do you remember Lawrence?
1: Absolutely.
3: Yeah. Well. Yeah. well, Lawrence had a 600-millimeter lens uh, on, on a monopod. And he said, stop shaking. He said, you're shaking my lens. I said, I can't shitting myself here. You know, and he looked at me at the one eye that wasn't in the viewfinder. And he said, Do you know, he said, the last German under this kind of pressure shot himself in a bunker. Which is still, still the most inappropriate thing I've ever heard on a golf course.
0: When you played with Sam Torrance, though, Sam tells a story about how nervous you were.
3: Oh, yeah. Yeah. The first hole. Um, I uh, I managed to hit the fairway. We're playing against uh, Marco Mira and I want to say Hale Irwin, and uh, you know I, I'm you know beyond nervous. I hit, hit my tee shot in the fairway and I hit it on about 20 feet short of the green, but I, I I hit I hit one of those putts and Sam is standing there leaning on his putter, smoking a cigarette that he's rolled, you know, and he watches me. I leave it about six feet short from about 15 feet. And uh, no, I'll tell you who it was. It was Watkins. It was Watkins and O'Meara. And Watkins blew a snot bubble. It was, it was such a bad putt, you know. And uh, Sam came over to me and, and he put his arm around me and he said, he said, you pull yourself together. He says, or I'll join the other two and you can play all fucking three of us. <laughs> <laughs> and how close do you follow the game now? Um, you know, I, I, I sort of am winding down with, uh, you know, f- watching every single thing. I've been a little disillusioned, uh, to be honest with you, with the attitude of the PGA Tour and the DP World Tour towards live, you know, and I, I don't pay as much attention to them anymore. I'm tending to concentrate on what we've got going on the pirate ship. <laughs> <laughs> but t- tell
2: us a little bit more about about your position on well your your feelings towards. PGA Tour and, and DP World Tour you know where do your issues lie with them
3: well I mean I think it's just a shame that they didn't want even to talk in the first place um, you know you, you've got some of the finest players in the world that have kind of left your ranks and um, basically they, they just need to cheer the fuck up you know <laughs> yep and you um, Get uh, get us to the stage where you know we we can devise a way for the live players to earn world ranking points because I think Dustin Johnson is 235th in the world right now, you know that that, that sort of makes the world rankings irrelevant.
1: David, it's quite interesting to, to to see sort of the narrative of the year and how things have almost come to to a point now where there are rumblings that there will be the major parties sitting down next year. Obviously, there's a lot of water under the, under the bridge, but you get a sense that the, that's moving closer to, to reality where the DP World Tour, PGA Tour Alliance is perhaps now got to a point and, and likewise live where both parties are perhaps more interested in, in chatting about a, a collaborative future.
3: Yeah, I, I do. You know, I, I see that happening. It's, it's just golf. That's all, you know. It's not, uh, uh, you know, going to change the uh, the course of politics or, you know, human rights or, or whatever. It's just golf, and uh, there's plenty of money to be played for by everybody. It's a great time to be a professional golfer. Um, you know, Dale and I, you know, both played in a time when, it, you know, you could argue that it wasn't a great time to be a professional golfer. You had to be you know, really pretty special at the game to make any kind of a living. Um, Not that you don't now. you know, the standard is so incredibly high, but, uh, you know, there's a lot more to be played for and there's plenty of room in the game for everybody.
2: Do you have some sort of idea in your own head about how the two tours could possibly coexist?
3: Yeah, you know, I mean, I think um, with the the, the live players, you know, hopefully they'll be playing in all four of the majors, and, and you could take a half dozen or uh, there are only 14 events on the live tour schedule, you know, and uh, 20 events is a, a long, uh, you know, it, it's a long season for these guys. The, many of them don't play quite a, that much, but most of them will play around 20, I would think. So, I mean, you could choose four uh, events uh, on the, say, the PGA Tour, four on the GP World Tour, whatever that, uh, you know, the live players could come and play in. And uh, you know, it wouldn't rock the boat uh, at all.
1: Do you think you get a sense that the, it is a question of the of the of the PGA Tour looking to protect their turf, uh, and that's all a, sort of a preservation approach? Uh, and likewise, obviously, with their alliance partner, the DP World Tour, they're just trying to remain relevant and, and protect what it's had, and, that, and that's what's informed their stance.
3: Yeah, you know, I mean, it's. Uh I, I'm not sure that they need to do that. You know, I mean, all of these tours are relevant. Um, you know, the, the standard of play is so high and, uh, we're going to have a, a TV deal, you know, uh, hopefully this year. Um, it, it's, it's a great, you know, form of entertainment. And, uh, you know, I think sometimes we tend to forget that, you know, it's just a sport. That's all. It's supposed to be a, a respite, you know, uh, a, uh, a, a move away from, you know, the, 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 troubles and tribulations in life. You know, I hate to see, uh, I hate to see them work their way into golf.
1: Your thoughts on the, the criticism that, 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 live with its, with its 54 hole format is not real golf in the, in the eyes of some traditionalists, if I can put it that yeah. way.
3: Yeah. Well, you know, the, uh, the open championship uh, used to be 36 holes and uh, then it went to 54 and uh, then it went to 72 you know we have a younger crowd um at our events we have a younger crowd watching and on the streaming platforms that sort of thing i mean this is uh you know it's the evolution of the game you know um whether or not you know, I, I don't expect any other uh, tour in the world to go to 54 holes, but you know, I'm happy that, uh, that, that we're there at the minute. And, and there are a couple of other things you know, that we do um, that uh, I think are, are, are pretty special and that I was skeptical about uh, to start with. You know, the team uh, aspect of it, the players are really on board with that and we're starting to see you know, the golfing public you know, take an interest in those teams. The shotgun start what it's done dale is it's uh it's taken the players and you know players that that wouldn't spend a a whole lot of time with each other normally you know and it's put them in the in the locker room before you know the, the the game all you know all together in the locker room then they're all together on the range they're all together on the golf course and they finish at the same time so there's a sense of brotherhood that's kind of developed you know throughout with that you know these different formats uh, i think it's just it's a fun aspect of of the game that hasn't been explored yet and you know we just happen to be the ones doing it
0: the one thing the one thing that that really bothers me is is the fact that we for the first time i think in golf i mean barring the odd little spat that you had in golf you're hearing guys bad-mouthing each other publicly yeah i mean for example in some Africa right now we've got Laurie Cantor playing we've got Eddie Pepperell playing. Yeah, you know, Eddie Pepperell was the best man at Laurie Cantor's wedding. They don't talk to each other anymore. It's crazy. Yeah, that's ridiculous.
3: Yeah, yeah. I can't remember who was the best man at my first <laughs> wedding. To
0: be honest with you,
3: but uh, I'm pretty sure I talked to him though.
0: So. You know the things that uh, you know. Rory, Rory said one or two things that are kind of put me a little bit out of order about Greg, and Greg said one or two things a little bit out of order about other players. You know, I just, I just. That, that bothers me because we've never had that in golf before.
3: Yeah, no, you're right. It's always been civil and always gentlemanly. You know, the, that's the way, just the nature of the sport. And uh, I think it's a shame, you know, when people get bent out of shape. It's like I said, you know, there's there's plenty to go on for everybody. There uh, there really is, especially today. You know, so there's, there's no reason for people to get, you know, bent, you know, on this at all.
1: Your thoughts then, David, on the on the suggestion uh, the last week or two that that Billy Horschel was looking for for fifty million dollars from from Live, uh, which they turned him down, and he's become one of the more vocal critics of the of the Live Golf Tour.
3: Well, you know, uh, it, it's uh, it's kind of strange, you know, that someone would uh, you know ask to be on it, and then you know when they don't get on it, you know, be critical of it. Uh, I, you know, it, it's it's a good place to be um it's a fun place to be and uh i suppose there's a, a knee-jerk reaction there you know i mean if you don't you know experience is what you get when you don't get what you want
1: can you confirm in your, your sources that, that that's in case that is indeed the case what have you heard that it was horschel looking for 50 million dollars
3: oh um i have no idea um i haven't really spoken to anyone um outside of a zoom meeting that we had uh, about three weeks ago um and uh, I don't really concern myself with, uh, with the uh, upper management levels. <laughs> it's, uh, that's beyond my pay grade. David, just on a, on a more personal side, you know, you've,
0: you've had probably, uh, I think it'd be fair to say, more than your fair share of bad things happen to you. You know, when I say yeah. bad things, I'm talking about things like, like divorces and stuff like that. Uh, divorce, yeah. sorry, singular. Um, <laughs> yeah but you seem to always come back very strongly how have you been able to do that
3: you know I've, I've been equally lucky in in my life Dale. um you know there there've been some uh, bad breaks and there've been some tragic things you know that have happened to me the loss of, uh, of my son to cocaine um a, a few years ago he died on his his 29th birthday um but uh you, you know i've i've had um the most amazing support from from my, my wife, um, and I call her my first wife because I'm not sure what the first one was. <laughs> um, it was uh, you know, it, it was uh, right around the time of my divorce, you know, that I met Anita. And uh, it's been 28 years now. And uh, any time that I've fallen, she's been there to pick me up and... Um, you know, my, my troubles with substance abuse and you know, alcoholism and mental illness, uh, you know, I, I haven't been the easiest person to live with, uh, you know, in many occasions over the years. But she has been just extraordinary, has, has just stuck by me. And if I were to pick any one thing, you know, that uh, that uh, has, you know, helped me come back from from these things, it would have to be her.
2: If you go back, I mean, have you always had that addictive personality?
3: Yeah, I I have always had that uh, addictive personality. You know, I got uh, addicted to uh, uh, golf. Uh, I got addicted to music in school. I was hopeless in school. Uh, You know, I was a classic attention deficit child uh, where I I couldn't learn. I couldn't pay attention to anything that didn't interest me. Um, And uh, really, you know, turn into golf. uh, And I learned how to drink. You know, uh, towards my the end of my uh, tenure in in high school, <laughs> which I, I interestingly enough, I was I was asked to uh, come back and speak at the graduation uh, ceremony in my high school a number of years ago, and that they neglected to, to check whether or not I had in fact graduated, <laughs> which uh, I I did. <laughs> I, I hadn't done, but uh, I went back and and did it anyway just for a laugh. Yeah, but the, the addictive side of it has always been with me my, my whole life. Um, I, uh, you know, whether it was uh, alcohol, which I, I got into early, and I'm, I'm the most, uh, you know, dangerous kind of, of addict. I'm, I'm functional with it. Um, yeah. I, uh, I, I didn't really get hung over much, um, you know, and uh, I, I, I played through it. Uh, I broadcast through it, um, you know, and uh, you know it, it was—it's just the sort of thing that I have just a, a an enormous uh, tolerance for poison, it seems, um, and it, it struck me early on in life.
2: You're an incredibly funny man, renowned for your your chirps on the course and and your and your quotes. But were you the class clown at school? Could you be able to turn it on and off?
3: Um, you know, I, what happened was, you know, the teachers made me me feel stupid um, and and the other children made me feel stupid. I, I couldn't pass an exam or, or anything like that. You know, so I ended up making fun of myself um, as, a, as a self-defense. And it turns out that I was much better at it than they were. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I wasn't the class clown. I was the guy who convinced the class clown that he should run naked across the rugby field, you know, <laughs> with a banana in his ass, you know, whatever. <laughs> Sounds That's, intriguing. Uh, yeah, I, I was the instigator.
1: David, when you first uh, got into sort of commentary or on-course reporting, when the Yanks, the Americans, first got to know you, what did they make of this uh, this, this Irish sense of humour? Did it take them a while to get their heads around it, particularly the broadcasters and those you ended up working for?
3: Well, you know, I, I poke fun at people. And uh, fortunately... You know, golfers are are uh, great targets for that. Um, I, I haven't had a problem with anyone—not with Tiger or with, uh, you know, the, the the only person that I ever had a problem with um, was uh, was Monty. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, who uh, you know who couldn't sort of grasp the—I uh, nicknamed him Mrs. Doubtfire, which he never forgave me. For. <laughs> yeah. Um But you know, I tried to convince him to. I was writing the the back. Uh, the inside back cover for golf magazine here in the States. I did it for 15 years. And I asked Monty, look, would you do a cover for us? You know, for the magazine as Mrs. Doubtfire, people would love it. Yeah. You know, and and people would see that, you know, self deprecatory side. And I, I I tried to convince him, you know, that that would be a good idea, but he, he was just too thin skinned, you know, for it. And, and, you know, Monty is a, he's a great guy. Um, he is, but he, he just couldn't grasp that, you know, the, the fact that, you know, it's not, it's not what people say to you, you know, or, or say about you that matters. It's your reaction to it. Yeah. And that's how you'll be judged. And, and he could never quite grasp that, but I never had a problem with another player or, um, in broadcasting with, uh, a producer or, uh, you know, everyone, you know, about the game, I think has a pretty good sense of humor.
2: I think you said about Monty as well, he was a few French fries short of a happy meal. I'm sure you didn't appreciate that too much.
3: No, no. And uh, what was the other one? Yeah, no, his body, he looked like a ruptured sofa.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you got Dale laughing. Yeah. David, the other,
0: the other lovely story about Tiger, when he pulled his cap down over his face and he called you into the middle of the fairway to tell you a joke to
3: oh, ask you a question. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, Tiger uh, and I, we, we were together for 20 years, you know, on the golf course. And uh, he, he had to be real careful about, you know, what he said. And, you know, people would take it and take segments of it out of context and use it against him. And, you know, he was pretty guarded. But we were walking past and well, there was one sort of memorable little sort of joke. He said, hey, Ferdy. He pulls his cap down so he can't be lip red. I said, what? He said, what do you call a black guy flying an airplane? I said, I, I don't know. He said, a pilot, you fucking racist.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Talking about uh, sense of humor and all that kind of stuff and partying and everything. I remember when you won at Swakop, the ICL tournament, walking yeah. up the 18th fairway, I was interviewing Krista Burke. Berg. Right. You'd had a massive party with him the night before.
3: That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in, uh, in, in the house at Santon. Yeah. we done. Chris was there and, um, uh, you know, it was, it was nice to have someone like that around. Yeah. But I mean, Swarcoma had a ponytail. Um, oh, wow. I, I'm, I'm, it was a, it was a playoff, I think with Gavin Levinson, Gavin and and Pricey Nick, Nick Price Nick Price
1: you yeah. beat, no actually I think you beat you beat them both by a stroke uh, 1984 ICL oh. international David
3: right okay yeah there was a lot, lot of Vicodins I, ago <laughs> yeah it was a long time ago good God yeah.
2: <laughs> but t- yeah. t- speaking of potting hard and he's talking about having a a good time with Christa Berg, but I as you said you know you were you were one to really let your hair down tell us about the time you you won the Scottish Open. But uh, oh. you woke up in Copenhagen.
3: Well, no, no, that was uh, that was a, a different. Uh, oh I mean, wh- no! Uh, you lost the that trophy. Was the, the so Scandinavian you, Open. You lost the trophy. Open, which yeah, was in Malmo. No, but yeah, and uh, the morning after, uh, or the morning of the first round, I woke up in Copenhagen. Yeah, which is not in Sweden, as it <laughs> turns out. Yeah, turns but uh, no, the Scottish Open, I, I lost the trophy, and. Um, you know, it, it was one of the oldest trophies in golf, uh, you know, the Scottish Open. And uh, the Led Zeppelin were playing that uh, evening, that Sunday evening in uh, in Glasgow. And I decided, because my manager um, at the time had been, the, uh, had been uh, the road manager for Led Zeppelin in the 70s. And uh, he got backstage tickets and all the rest. And I decided it would be a good idea to take the Scottish Open trophy to a Led Zeppelin concert. And, uh, you know, I, I remember going backstage and I don't remember a whole lot after that. Um, it was, uh, uh, and the two days later I woke up in the ferns to the left of the 16th tee at Glen Eagles, which is a 120 <laughs> miles away, uh, you know, from where I won the Scottish open, um, with, uh, with no Scottish open trophy. Where was the and trophy? Yeah, I, well, we don't know. Uh, Dale, thanks for bringing that up. It's, it hasn't surfaced yet. Yeah.
1: I want to come back to, to, to Tiger and and, and plug you for a bit more info, and, and specifically, obviously, you know, Ernie Els is a is well known to us as a South African golfing icon, and, and that story about the, yeah. the shot at Firestone. Can you run us through that? Oh,
3: yeah. Well, I mean, the two of them that were tied um, playing the last hole, and, uh, Tiger had popped up his tee shot with a three wood. He could never hit that fairway for some reason. I mean, he won, I don't know, I think eight times there, but, uh, the, the last fairway seemed to elude him a lot of the time. And Ernie had hit this enormous tee shot down the, the, the middle of the fairway, about 50 yards ahead. So, uh, I'm, I'm walking with Ernie, whom I've known since he was eight years old on the putting green at Campton park, you know, and, uh, we do a little drive by Tigers ball and Steve Williams is there, you know, and he points it out. We can't see it, you know, and Ernie, you know, looks at it. He's not upset about this lie, (laughs) but it is, it is a horrific lie. And uh, Lanny Watkins had the call at, uh, at 18 and I walked down the fairway and I'm, I'm almost leaning up against Ernie. You know, I'm, I'm I'm tired. I'm sober. I'm pissed off, you know, and uh, the last thing I want is a playoff. Uh, I mean any broadcaster'll tell you that you know oh please god not a playoff we've had enough of this yeah. no so uh, tiger's got hundred and eighty four yards from a lie that if you gave me a stick of dynamite on my sandwich i couldn't move it 50 yards it is uh, horrendous this lie but he's made me look like an idiot on so many occasions you know that I'm wary of what he might be able to do and uh, i turn my microphone on it's on a you know on off switch in my waist pack and you know my, uh watkins asked me what's he got david and i said well he's got 184 yards here a big red oak in front of the tree he's gonna have to force it out to the right of that and he will get a look at the flag for his third shot maybe from about 100 yards landing and i close my mic and ernie is right there and he's kind of nodding you know that's you know what might happen and um i look over at steve williams and he gives me the signal for a pitching wedge you know, and Tiger's got his, you know, his club out and he's taken a couple of vicious hacks at the, the, the grass, you know, beside the ball, you know, on yeah. his practice swing and, yeah. Yeah. you know, and he gets in over it and, and, and he makes, he makes a swing that I can only describe it as, you know, his, his, his right leg comes free at impact and, and he starts wandering all over the place to follow through. I thought he'd torn his sack. <laughs> um, I, uh, i uh, i couldn't believe the swing the and i look up just in time to see this ball sailing over the big red oak in front of the 18th green at firestone and it lands behind the hole like a sack of wet assholes <laughs> wham like that in the dark yeah um and uh, ernie you know uh, i uh, i'm still standing with ernie and i i have no idea what to say as, as a as a broadcaster you know as a course reporter. I'm supposed to see these things coming. So just as I turn my microphone on, Ernie turns to me and says, fuck me. <laughs> and I, I, I thought, you know, I mean, here's the second best player in the world at the minute. You know, if anybody wanted some truthful commentary on what we've just witnessed, he would be, you know, the number one qualified guy to to say it. And, and yeah. that's, that's what he said. And uh, it was exactly accurate. Yeah. <laughs> The cor- correct response to that particular shot.
2: How many times were you standing by there watching Ernie Els finish runner up to Tiger Woods? You think about—he's you know, had a fantastic career and he's a, an amazing player. How many times yeah. did you think, "Gee whiz, it's just not going to happen"? I
3: I know. Um, it, it's amazing when you when you look at uh, at Phil Mickelson and and Ernie. You know, th- those two sort of stand out. They were number two in the world between the two of them for uh, for years. And uh, you know w- what their careers would have looked like if it hadn't been for this uh, for this uh, freak of nature, you know yeah. that they were up against. Yeah, tell us about the
2: um, the very uncomfortable interview you once had with Tiger Woods after a mid-round incident.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, we uh, it was at Quail Hollow, and we'd been involved in a in a kind of a juvenile farting contest. <laughs> Um, where I, I thought that, um, uh, on the 15th, uh, hold a big power five, the, uh, up the hill. And, uh, I thought that I could turn, uh, one fart into two. And it, as it turned out, it was only one and a half farts. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, it, it was a little more serious than that. And, uh, I thought, oh, well, that's me. I, I surrender, you know, I'm, uh, I'm gonna have to walk this off and uh it was about 95 degrees with 80 percent humidity and you know by the time i i got up to the 15th grade, my ass looked like it looked like the japanese flag probably <laughs> you know and uh a couple of holes later you know i'm limping in whatever and, and i'm dreading dreading having to interview him afterwards you know uh because we uh we're right up against 60 minutes and, uh, you know, they want to get off the air quickly. So the two of us are standing, you know, beside the scorer's tent, whatever, and we're in a lockdown uh, situation where the camera is locked down and we got two marks. You know, he's standing beside me. And uh, he, uh, we're waiting for Jim Nance to throw it to me. Um, and uh, Tiger turns to me and, and he kind of snips a little bit like this. And he says, did you fart? <laughs> and I said, uh, technically, no. And uh, at which point, you know, he said, oh, man, he said, you got to clean yourself up. He said, that's ridiculous. And I told him, I'm not sure if I'm finished yet. At which point, he he doubled over and disappeared out of the shot right as Jim Nance threw it to me. And I've got him by his belt, you know, and I'm trying to pull him back up into the shot, you know, like this yeah. while he's blowing a snot bubble, you know. <laughs> it was a nightmare. For both of you. you know? Yeah, for both of us. Yeah, <laughs> having to explain that to my producer, you know, was uh, was awkward.
0: David, your comedy, the comedy show that uh, that you're doing now, the one Man yeah. Show. How much of it? How much? How much of it concerns golf, and how much just concerns life?
3: Yeah, it's about fifty-fifty, Dale. Um, you know, I, I've spent uh, I spent my whole career, obviously, you know, traveling around the world, you know, with with professional athletes, the, you, as you know. There's a lot of funny stuff that, that goes on and a lot of it's about, you know, my, my, my dad and, you know, growing up in, in Belfast in Northern Ireland and, uh, you know, moving here to the United States, you know, meeting people here as well. It's really, it's a sort of a travelogue through my life um, with, uh, you know, a bunch of fart jokes thrown in.
2: <laughs> Can't go wrong, as, you've, as we've yeah. just heard, cannot go wrong.
3: Yeah, no, can't you can't.
0: So tell me, tell me, you're going to do one at the uh, at the PGA show in Orlando in January. Oh, am I? I'm asking. You, I don't know. I hope so. Oh, I'd like well,
3: to- I I I know I've got uh, I've got three or four shows in January. I think uh, two of them are at the Villages, which isn't very far away from uh, the uh, the PGA show, and uh, I've got two at the uh, Kravis Center in West Palm Beach on the 12th and 13th of January. I think it is. Yeah, but uh, I I don't know when the PGA show is. Uh, what, what let's is check it? it out.
2: Would you show your face at something like the PGA show, David? Or I mean, what, what I'm basically getting at is by moving over to live, do you feel like you've made a lot of enemies?
3: No, no, I don't. I mean, I've experienced nothing like that. You know, I've had nothing but support. Um and I no, I don't feel like uh, I've made enemies or uh I mean I could easily go to the PGA show, yeah, and I'd be very comfortable there.
1: And do you feel do you feel like what what Liv's offering you, David, is uh you feel like you're really hitting your straps in terms of your personality? Is it is there is there an absolute natural fit then for, for what Liv are trying to achieve from their from their broadcast? Uh is yes. it, does that fit very much with your personality?
3: Yes, it it, it fits. For, for me, perfectly, I can be myself for the first time in, in a long while, you know, because this politically correct uh, woke atmosphere that we're in is bullshit for comedy. Um, it, it'll be the death of comedy. We're being held to ransom by a bunch of mean spirited, you know, uh, humorless uh, minorities here that are incredibly vocal and they're just spoiling it for the rest of us. You know, uh, cheer the fuck up. Did
1: you you definitely felt that you were restricted in your previous broadcast jobs that there were definitely no-go areas and you you really couldn't be yourself 100 percent?
3: yeah yeah and it, it wasn't the fault of any particular network or anything like that it's just the social climate that we're in yeah, yeah. Uh, i mean I, I felt like that yeah
2: well bottom line is that everybody's too scared to offend so nobody says anything
3: well that's right that's right you know and you know and, and offending someone is, is, in some ways, the greatest compliment you can offer them, you know, because you understand who they are by their reaction to it. And, you know, for instance, I've got a, a, a foundation over here for wounded uh, military, and uh, we've got a kid called Brendan Morocco who lost both arms and both legs. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he was the first quad amputee to survive in, in theater in Iraq. And uh, I was telling a few jokes uh, at Chevy Chase Golf Club in, in Maryland, just outside of Washington, D.C., and it's near Walter Reed, the hospital, yep. where Brandon had had his surgeries and, uh, you know, he's coming out. And I've been told that, that he was going to visit, you know, with, uh, with his brother, Michael. And sure enough, you know, around the corner here, they come in a golf cart. And I've got about 200 of the members and about 30 patients from the hospital on the putting green. And they pull up, and he's been driven by Michael, his brother, in a cart. And um, I said, uh, oh, you must be Brandon. And he looked at me and said, how did you know? <laughs> and I, I said, well, you're not as tall as I thought you'd be. Uh, at, which, at which point there are people peeling off, you know, thinking, oh, geez, oh God. Yeah. Um, he said, well, I used to be taller. And I said, well, you need to hang on in the cart there. You know, the last thing we need is you falling out and injuring yourself. And he looked at me and he said, "I can hang on with my ass cheeks." You know, so, so I mean, if I can make fun of someone like Brandon Morocco, yeah. you know, and he can show me who he is by his, you know, response. People thought even more of Brandon than they did. Yeah, you know, because of the interaction that we had. You know, that's what I offer people. You know, if I say something that's offensive or, or whatever, it's like, who are you? Mm. You know, how do you do? De- how do you deal with this? You know, and can I think more of you because of it? Yeah, I, I can.
1: So in this uh, this ultra-woke environment that we find, now find ourselves in, uh, David, w- what do you identify with for yourself?
3: What do I identify as? Yeah, what well, are your pronouns, David?
1: As, what are your pronouns?
3: Yeah, I, I identify as a German shepherd, so that means <laughs> I can shit on your lawn. Yeah. Well, Piers Morgan was identifying
2: as a male emperor penguin for a while, so... Oh, right. Okay.
3: Yeah, I can see that. But,
2: but, I mean, you've, like I said earlier, you've come up with so many brilliant quotes and um, Colin Montgomery didn't take it particularly well. But you've said stuff about Phil. you said stuff about Jim Furyk. Uh, I mean, how did, yeah. they, how did they take it?
3: Oh, perfectly. You know, I mean, Jim Furyk, one of the great people out there, you know, a prolific money winner, a tremendous player, a really dry sense of humor. Um, you know, he gets it. You know, he understands
2: and those quotes, by the way, were those quotes that you came up with on the spot or did you actually go home and think about them a bit?
3: Oh, no, I don't think about anything. <laughs> um, otherwise, I probably would never speak. Yeah.
2: <laughs> probably good policy. Back to live again, we go. But do you think that the, the players that joined initially made a mistake in the sense that they, they couched their going there for anything besides the massive amounts of money that they were paid?
3: No, I, I don't think they made a mistake, and I think you know history will bear that out. Um, you, you know, we're we're talking about world class players playing world class golf on 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 great golf courses in front of different crowds and in a different atmosphere. You know, it's a different time for golf, and um, you know, I, I think that, that they'll be uh, they'll be remembered as you know kind of the vanguards, you know, for 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 that particular discipline.
2: Vanguard. Yeah, vanguards, you made a shit ton of money.
3: Yes, exactly. Yeah.
1: They obviously want to broaden the, the base and, and take the Live Golf offering uh, to as many places in the world as possible. And there's talk that there's been discussions about bringing Live Golf to South Africa. And I know at least one golf estate has had an approach about Live bringing a tournament here and possibly even buying a, yeah. a course or an estate. Do you know anything about that? And can you fill us in about, about Live's intentions with regards to South Africa?
3: You know, the, the schedule has been fluid almost. You know, it, it, we've got to remember, like, last year, it was eight events. It was our first year. Um, and uh, the production crew, the TV people, put it together in, in a two or three months after, you know, the decision was made that we were going to go ahead and, and, and have this tour. Uh, it was an extraordinary job, just a friggin' miracle by the special forces of broadcasting um they pulled in stars from from everywhere you know on the, on the production side and uh you know getting golf courses uh to uh, agree to have the events uh you know there, there was a rush to the uh to the start line that's for sure so and i know that uh next year we're going to be playing in australia in singapore in london and mexico and uh spain i know spain yep yeah. Uh, I'm not sure that the schedule is 100% final uh, at the minute, but you know, there's no reason that we wouldn't play in South Africa. And boy, would I love to come back! I, I, I would love to be able to come back to South Africa to, to broadcast a golf tournament. Is, Memories of yeah, Dennis Hutchinson. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. Actually, <laughs> you know,
0: by yeah, the uh, by the way, David, I I told Dennis Hutchinson that I that we were going to be talking to you, and he yeah. said, "I'm pleased." Very, very best regards. You know that he's ninety years old now.
3: Now, yeah, bless his heart. I love Hutch. Yeah, you know, and I loved working with him and and being around him. He's just such a great man.
2: He's also given up the booze.
3: Has he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, well, look, look, when I, if I'm ninety, trust me, I'm starting again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: the South African one's an interesting one because, you know, live could effectively. Let's first talk to the the Sunshine Tours alliance with the DP World Tour, which, ergo, goes to an alliance with the PGA Tour. Um, But effectively, Live Golf um, essentially could do a deal to do a tournament here in South Africa. They wouldn't, I would imagine, need the the consent of a Sunshine Tour to come in and to hold a Live Golf event here should they do a deal with 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 an individual estate or a golf course?
3: Yeah, no, I I don't see that being an issue either. You know, I mean, w- we go play where, uh, you know, we want to play.
0: Absolutely. You could, there's, there's, uh, you know, you wouldn't need to get permission from anybody. You could go and do a deal with a golf course and you could have a golf tournament. There's the same yeah. in America. Are they able to play in America or, or London or wherever? So there'd be no, no difference to that. David, I've got to finish my side. I've got two questions for you. Yeah. And the one is, you know, I've known you obviously for a very, very long time. And you must prick yourself sometimes to actually believe in your wildest dreams that this could have happened to you. When you think back, yeah. to your, of your golf commentary authored a whole bunch of very successful books, your own TV show, which was raved about and loved by golfers all over the place, your own foundation now getting back to doing solo comedy shows. Can you believe it's actually happened to you?
3: No. No, I mean, it, it, I, I do. I pinch myself. Uh, you know, frequently, my, my golf career started, Dale, at Umcomas, uh, staying with my Uncle Harry and Aunt Margaret, my cousin Johnny, and, uh, you know, hitting balls out there at 17 years old. And and a love affair with South Africa for many years. Uh, and, you know, coming through that and... and you know, playing in Europe, playing in the United States, you know, getting into broadcasting, getting into writing, um, you know, and finally, you know, having the opportunity to be a lead analyst for something like Liv. I've just been incredibly lucky, you know, my, my whole life. I've been the right drunk in the right bar at the right time, you know, on several different occasions, you know, and if I hadn't been there, you know, and, and if I hadn't been drunk, you know, a lot of these things wouldn't have happened to me. You know, so uh, you know, I I don't uh, I don't drink anymore. But uh, you know, I don't I tell people I don't drink anymore than the average Irish rugby team. Um, so I I had, a, I had a great time while I was doing it. You know, that's for sure. I got no regrets.
0: My last serious question is: uh, What does the future hold for David Fett?
3: Well. You know, um, I've got a five-year deal uh, with Live. I'll be uh, 69 at the end of, of that one. Um, I, I would like to think that uh, I would continue doing it until, you know, like a Vern Lundquist or a, a Ken Venturi, or you know, just to, just to be thought of in the same terms would be wonderful for me. And, and uh, you know, I've been 29 years in the broadcasting industry now. I'd like to I'd like to do 40.
0: I think what you've done in your career is absolutely amazing. You know, the books, I've read your books. I've, uh, watched, I've watched your TV shows. Fantastic. It really is. It's unbelievable.
3: Well, thank you, buddy. You've been a great friend for, oh, God, 40 years. That's just depressing. <laughs> um, <laughs> has it been 40 years? it been more than that, more than that. So, David,
2: I'd like to know as we wrap things up, but you look back at it and your career, as you say, is not over. But your standout moment so far.
3: Oh, um, well, you know, uh, from a playing standpoint, there was the Ryder Cup, you know, and then the Open Championship. And, uh, you know, any time I won, you know, was was wonderful. Uh, Broadcasting, there have been so many you know, Tiger's first uh, Masters was was my first Masters as a broadcaster. Uh, you know, he wins by twelve, and then from from there on, everything was a highlight. Um, you know, for being with him for uh, on the ground at the leading edge, you know, for for twenty years, and and being in the Tiger Woods group, you know, was was just amazing. I'd have to put that. You know, as collectively, you know, the, the high point of of my career so far has has been being with him, you know, on the ground.
1: From from a playing point of view, David, you mentioned the Ryder Cup. Uh, I, I see the three top yeah. ten, the three top tens in the majors. The six tied for six at the '89 Open, uh, tied for seventh at yeah. the at the '91 PGA, and tied for fourth at the the '83 Open Show, '94 Open Championship. Were any of those where you where, what was a highlight for you or a sense that you you got close to that to that elusive major victory
3: yeah i you know i never ever had a chance a realistic chance to win uh one of those you know which was a a regret i suppose you know or a you know a, a failing if, or, or failure if you like um even when i finished close you know the uh, closest i got was fourth at turnberry in 94 yeah 94 wrote, yeah four. 94 but uh you know i i I didn't get uh that was pricey that won that one yeah and uh i'm not sure that i got within three or four shots of him you know in that last round so i mean i can't blame myself for throwing a major away or anything like that i never really had the opportunity to 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 get a hold of one you weren't pissed enough yeah that's right i was too sober yeah
2: (laughs) (laughs) well david Thank you very much for for joining us on the podcast. It's been really fascinating. You chuck the word legend around quite loosely these days, but you are a legend. You were a legend on the golf no. course and you were a and you still are a legend behind the microphone and uh, you know we look forward to following you in your in your new capacity as lead as lead anchor.
3: Lead anchor. Yeah, I'll be dragging the boat down. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but go well and Thanks a f- lot David.
1: And thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks David, much appreciated. That episode of The Long and the Short of It brought to you by Blair Athol Golf and Equestrian Estate. For access to an unparalleled living experience, visit blairathol.coza and make an appointment to take the first steps in realizing your dream home. Blair Athol offers the ultimate and secure luxury estate living where lifestyle is a priority. A world-class championship golf course, outstanding equestrian facilities, mountain bike and running trails, a diverse wildlife, helipads, tennis and squash courts, a high-tech fitness center, spa and restaurant facilities, On top of that, the perfect environment in which to raise a family with easy access to nearby schools and close proximity to the planned Lanseria smart city. So why not visit Blair Athol or and take those first steps? Come home to Blair Athol, an unparalleled living experience.
3: There it is, a win for the ages. The long and short of it. Simon Hill, Dylan Rogers and Dale Hayes. Thanks for listening. We'd ask our friends, except
0: we don't have any. So please like and rate this podcast. Until next time.